0: Welcome to Cars Yeah! Show number 29. This is Cars Yeah! Where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah! Hello automotive enthusiasts. I am very excited today to introduce my special guest, Tim McGrain. Tim, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am, Mark. Okay. Tim McGrain is the executive director of the Blackhawk Automotive Museum. Tim's passion for automobiles, in combination with his business experience, puts him in charge of an amazing collection of unique and special vehicles. Tim's business background includes being the Director of Operations for Rick Cole Auctions, the Vice President of Marketing and Corporate Communications for Barrett-Jackson, and he was the Vice President of Event Marketing for KurtCo Media, the publisher of Rob Report Magazine. He is a committee chair for the Pebble Beach Concorde d'Elegance and a consultant to the Credit Suisse Classic Car Program. as one of the world's leading museums of automotive art and design the Blackhawk Automotive Museum, at over 100,000 square feet, is well known for its stunning architecture and an unparalleled collection of -of one-of-a-kind coachwork and limited production automobiles, all of which are in Tim's and his team's capable care. So, Tim, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you, so please take some time and share some more about your history, your career, your interests, and of course, your passion for automobiles.
1: Mark, thank you. Um. It started very early. I grew up in England, uh, in Kent, which is the southeast part of England, and, and actually just a couple of miles from one of the major race circuits, Brands Hatch. Um, so at a very early age, I was exposed to both motorsports, plus my uh, father was in the car business. He was a used car dealer. Um, so cars were, were very much just part of the life. And, and I think that's the same in, in Europe um, you know, over here, you've got the three major sports, football, basketball, and baseball. Um, in Europe and, and other parts of the world, motorsport is, is also a very, um, very major component of just everyday life. Um, I think anybody who watched the British Grand Prix just recently, uh, the commentary made made mention to that, you know, how motorsports in England, you know, is very much, you know, part of society at that time. So I was around cars from an early age, um, and it just... It just stayed with me um,
0: and grew. And you must be excited that Hamilton won the race the other day?
1: I, I was. It was anxious. I you know, watched qualifying. That was a tough one to watch. I, whether you were a, a Hamilton fan or, or a Ferrari fan, you just had to shake your head and go, what happened there? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so for the results to end up the way they did, yes, I was extremely happy. And not only that, but, but also a, a big Williams F1 fan for many years.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, take us through your journey as your career evolved into the many aspects of of the automotive world. You've done so many different things. If you could maybe take our listeners through that process or through the time history of your career and how you ended up at Blackhawk.
1: I um, uh, finished my mechanical engineering degree in southeast of England, and a friend of mine, we had decided we were going to come to the United States. This was in the early 80s, and eighty one for a three-week vacation, and then we came to California. The plan was to go to Los Angeles, San Diego, Las Vegas, San Francisco, and, and spend three weeks doing that. And we got to Los Angeles, and we ended up in Palm Springs the next day and, and met some British people down there and was having a great time. And of the three weeks, we spent nearly two and a half weeks in Palm Springs. We went to San Francisco for a day and San Diego for a day. But on the flight back, I remember thinking, I've got to give that a try got home and met up with our friends that we normally meet up on a Friday Saturday night down at the pub. And, and after about two weeks, I mentioned it. And, and everybody said, we all say that and we get back in the same old routine. And I knew this was in October. And I knew that I just had to, to keep that flame alive. And fortunately, I kept in touch with the British, one of the British families that we'd met. And February the following year, thanks to the programs that, that Freddie Laker, when Laker Airlines were in their heyday, packed everything I could into two suitcases and and headed back to Southern California and haven't looked back since.
0: (laughs) What an adventure. And having grown up in Southern California, I guess I took a lot of that for granted. But what was it about Southern California that was, was pulling you there?
1: I suppose you could say everything. Now, the reality is, when you're on vacation, you're going to Palm Springs. That is not the real world you, you see what you want to see and it, it's not reality uh, but at that particular time it was 180 degrees to what it was in the winter time in england especially in the early 80s when the economy was really really challenging and even somebody coming out of, of college you you knew you know how how tough it was for everybody you live in california or southern california every day you wake up in the sun's shining nearly every day that alone puts you head and shoulders above waking up when it's gloomy all the time I was there, I had a mechanical engineering degree, and I didn't play golf, and I was in Palm Springs, so I really was in the wrong place, but I ended up in the hospitality business and and met a gentleman that that had an exclusive inn and restaurants and and nightclubs and and started in that business uh, for a period of time, and that got me very well entrenched with the Palm Springs community and the Chamber of Commerce, and by 83 or 84, there there was a few English people down there, also people that were into cars and we all thought about trying to come up with something that would start the season down there, which started traditionally the Thanksgiving weekend was the start of the shopping season or the business season. So we came up with the idea, because we were car people, we'd do a vintage race, because we had to know how to put one of those on. We like cars. So in 85, a group formed out of the local Chamber of Commerce down there, put on Palm Springs Vintage Grand Prix. You know, we used a local... A southern california organizing group uh, but we did pretty much everything in-house and people just came out of the woodwork um you know i think it was back in those days the monterey races were very much in the heyday there was the chicago historic races at elkhart lake but there really was a, a shortage of vintage race opportunities and i think just the the palm springs name coming back into the fore next thing we know we had all manner of people showing up and, Dan driving one of the Eagles, and and Moss was there, and and somebody flew him out, and Shelby came down unannounced and just showed up. So we knew we had had something, but we also knew we were in over our head. Um, And the organizing committee, we went to Chris Cook and the Long Beach group. Chris at the time was obviously doing what was a very successful Long Beach Grand Prix, but was also running the IMSA race that was happening at the Del Mar Fairgrounds or the racetrack and he agreed to take over the running um, of the races from an operational point of view, and we as a local group would support it uh, with logistics. We did that. That was at 86, um, and Chris Poop brought in an auction company, Rick Cole Auctions. He and Rick had known each other from the start of the races, and, and I got exposed to the auction world and, and Rick's company by asking to organize the driver's group um, to handle the cars, and, and that's how I got introduced to Rick Basically, by the next year, I was, he was talking to me about coming to work for his company based in North Hollywood in the auction business, who so at that time were doing six auctions a year. You know, Rick was the person that, that started the did the first auction in Monterey. We were doing two auctions in Newport Beach, one in Universal City, and, and a couple of other ones, different ones around the country. Uh, we just had done think, two in Detroit, um, one in the early part of the year with the, the Hot Rod Show and one during the Grand Prix. So that was my start in the auction business and uh, basically being very entrenched in the sports and race car world predominantly in the late 80s when it was just uh, on fire.
0: I went to that first race in 85 in Palm Springs. I was living in uh, Del Mar and would go to the races, of course, the the next year, the Del Mar Grand Prix and, of course, up to Long Beach Grand Prix. So how funny that, that I was there and here we are. How many years later? Almost 30 years later and we're talking. Yeah. So uh Interesting. Well, that's quite an evolution from being a mechanical engineer to the catering business, to the racing business, to the auction business. And then how did those next steps evolve to get you to Blackhawk?
1: Well, Rick um, had known a gentleman, Don Williams, whose company, the Blackhawk Collection, has been around for many years. And Don was actually started in the business in Santa Monica many years ago. So Rick and Don were close. Don's specialty was the, the classic cars, and, and Rick's forte was the sports and race car world. I got, to in, I got introduced to Don probably in 89, 90, when he started doing an expo at Pebble Beach.
0: Oh, yeah, the, on the lawn there above the, uh, the lodge.
1: Yeah, actually, the very first one he did was down by the tennis club, as it was back then. Oh, okay. So there was one hell down there. And then, because the Monterey auction was, was quite successful, Don and Rick had got together about bringing some of their classic cars and doing a remote expo at, at Monterey, downtown. And I got introduced to Don at that time, and and we worked together. I worked together with Don's team, um, and it was a, just a couple of years after that that uh, Rick's company got taken over, not taken over, but, but Rick joined Don and uh, Blackhawk Collection assumed what was Rick Cole Auctions. Don's partner Richie Klein, who ran the Imperial Palace Auto Collection, the, the three of them formed this company called uh, World Classic Auction and Expo Company. And we moved up from North Hollywood. The company relocated from North Hollywood to Denver, and then I started with Don. And uh, actually, I worked with Don at uh, Blackhawk Collection for um, from '93 through 2000. He and I stayed very close when I left. After I left Don's company to go off to do uh, explore other opportunities, um, we stayed close. We did some stuff together. He supported some of the events that I was involved with. So three years ago, when he called and asked if I'd ever thought about coming back, I had not. Um, but it was certainly a conversation I was very pleased to have with him. And the quick answer was yes. And we just worked out the details. And and here I am back, and, and very pleased to be back working with Don, who's the president of the museum's board um, and very much the driving force. And, you know, it was his idea um, together with Ken Baring that made this, uh, this museum happen many years ago.
0: Well, it sounds like the key element throughout your career history is relationships. These relationships you formed over the years with people evolved and grew, and, and that's what brought you back. So uh, such an important part of, of business and life are building strong relationships.
1: You're correct there. My father always drilled into me. You know, things change in life. And at one time when I was at school, I had a part-time job and I decided I didn't like it and, and I left. And he asked me why I left and I told him I didn't like it. And he says, where are you going to work next weekend? I said, well, I don't know. And he looked at me and I didn't need to ask him why. Basically, he said, go back and get the job back. And, and when you leave, you leave on the right terms because you never know when you need to go back across that bridge sure. and I I always remember that and I've sort of you know lived by that you're right relationships have been um, very important to some of the opportunities that uh, that I've been fortunate enough to be involved with.
0: As we continue on your journey I'd like to start with a success quote uh, a saying that's been instrumental in forming your success in your life it's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yes so take the wheel Tim.
1: Well, I think you touched upon it when we talked about relationships i, I think that uh, that really is the the underlying way that I approach everything it's whatever i've been involved with whether it' been it's a one time opportunity you know always create the relationships and never never do something that that would prevent you from coming back to that venue as somebody that spent a lot of time in the, the special event world um you know we go to venues to conduct whether it's an auction or it's, in my previous life a luxury lifestyle world and that sometimes can, can have some challenges for the venue you're at and we, we always take that approach wherever we take a car to an event do an event at a particular venue you know always do it that you want to come back every, every year and build the relationships not when you need them but just because you want to build them it's it's very easy for somebody to say hey we're having a problem let's call this person up and see if he'll become our best friend overnight <laughs> um, always like to have people that you just know because you want to know them rather than you need to know them.
0: Sure. Well, and obviously you've incorporated that philosophy into your business as you described to us as building these relationships and nurturing them and taking care of them. And as your father taught you, not burning any bridges so that uh, you never know where these relationships can bring us back to in in our future. So wonderful. Would you share with a story with us that is perhaps a moment that instigated your passion for cars, that pivotal time in your life when you really knew that you were a car guy?
1: I think it was probably one of the times we were heading out to Brandtach Racetrack. Um, we would go out there quite frequently for all types of motors, motorsports, but, but in the late 60s, early 70s, it it would host the British Grand Prix every other year. The, the race would alternate between Silverstone one year and Brandtach the other year. And there was a, a group of us, and we were probably in our, our early teens, and there was one person that had the car, and he'd go around and pick everybody up, and and I remember that you know, going out there and the weather in England, you know, traditionally was you, you hoped it, that it wasn't going to rain. It may be cold, and miserable, but invariably it rained. And one year it was just pouring down and half the people in, in the car said, I don't feel like going out there. And, and I absolutely just, just had to go out there regardless. And I, and I, I think I ended up just cycling out there. Probably shouldn't say it, but you, you went out there with a pair of wire cutters and your bike, and, and <laughs> you, you cut a hole under the fence to crawl under, and you threw your bike over the top and, and out in the Grand Prix circuit. And yeah, I couldn't couldn't not miss that just because of the weather. Perfect. Um, I think that was probably uh, one of those moments that, uh, and I think probably anybody that's got a passion, whether it's for motorsports, cars, or any type of sport type event, I think we've all had those similar type of experiences of having to be somewhere.
0: Oh sure, sure. Tim, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and really crawl under the hood and and get our hands a little dirty. Would you share with us a huge challenge in your career, in your past, or maybe even a great failure that really pushed you to a breaking point, but more importantly, how you overcame that situation and what you learned from it?
1: Well, a lot of my career has been um, event-related. I hope that there isn't any part of it that it's been a failure in the event world. You don't get to practice them. You, know, mm. you, you, you really have to, um, there have been a few times where in the planning process, you think you've covered everything. And then, you know, that day comes or the day before comes and something happens and there's nothing you can do. And, um, not too long ago, I, when I was with Sanda publishing, we were doing events in South Florida and, uh, Hurricane Wilma was um, coming across the Gulf of Mexico, and then it was supposed to sort of track across Mexico, hit the west side of Florida, downgrade to a tropical storm, leave, um, and this was about four days before we had you know, one of our most important events of the year for that company. I remember the storm stalling across the Gulf of Mexico, and I probably was the only person looking at the weather tracking going, you know, go, go. <laughs> um, bottom line was, it, it hit the west coast of Florida, and not only did it not downgrade, but it picked up steam, and, and, and it went across the Fort Lauderdale area, probably at the time, you know, one of, I think it's the hurricane with the highest recorded wind speed ever.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: It tore up. It's the only hurricane I've been through, and I'm all right not doing any more of them.
0: How bad. <laughs>
1: Um, but needless to say, you know, and the, the thought was to, to, to fly in ahead of the storm um, so you're on the ground because air traffic, obviously, after any weather problem like that, you know, the planes were always in the long place. I thought, well, you know, we'll get in really late Sunday night, probably the only person on the plane or the, the colleague I was with flying into Fort Lauderdale, everybody else was headed out and got on the ground. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a bumpy ride. In the next day, we, we still had the thought of, of trying to get this event back together. In, in three days, we ended up making the decision about eight hours later that it wasn't going to happen. But just, just you know, being there and you know, once you're in an area that's just devastated to the extent that, that South Florida was, um, it was an eye-opening experience. I mean, we were. We spent the day in Fort Lauderdale and had to drive all the way across to the far side of Florida to find a hotel that was even open up in Sarasota, and then come back the next day. And I think at that point, probably the realization that this is one of these events that isn't just isn't going to happen, mm-hmm. um, and you had to put sort of a you know, get that information out as quick as possible because lots of companies were going to participate and, and try and share, to get that information out and and.
0: Pick up the pieces and regroup. Yeah, you pick up the pieces,
1: but then obviously, you know, in a very short period of time, you know, get something else rescheduled. So not just sort of say it didn't happen. Um, That that was quite an experience.
0: Oh, I'll bet it was. Oh, that sounds horrible. Tim, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and, and share a story with us when you had a real aha moment in your career, a time when you realized that I can actually make a living working around automobiles and my passion for automobiles. Take us through the steps that you did to turn that aha moment into a success.
1: I think it was probably when I first was asked by Rick Cole to join his company. At at that point in time, as being somebody that that liked cars, to think that there was a living to be made in that type of business, yes. I knew there was a living to be made as as a car dealer and, and different things like that. But to actually be to do that to start a career in the special event world that was around the world of classic cars, and and then working with Rick for those period of times, and then when we came, when I came up to Danville here the first time, you know, in the early nineties, you know, when Rick went to move off to do other things, you know, when Don asked me to stay with him, that really was probably you know a meaningful moment. Um, I knew the position that Don had in the international classic car world. And there was no shortage of people that I think would have been probably more qualified and would have loved to have the job. But I think at that particular time, you know, to to be able to to do what I was doing and to have Don say, you know, this is, I'm going to let you do what you need to do to make execute our company's events um, and also handle his marketing. I think that really probably was, you know, that springboard effect so what has been a you know a great career for the most part in, in and around classic
0: cars. Well isn't it amazing I would think when you look back at your life to the decision to come back to Palm Springs, doing events that probably had nothing to do with cars and then wrapping that back into those days of going out to brands hatch and crawling under the fence and then evolving that into events combined with car sales with Rick Cole and now events at a museum around cars. Really interesting transformation and, and trip you've had through your life. So wonderful story. Let's have a little fun here. Talk about your first car. What was that first car? And can you share maybe a great memory or something that you did with that car that you really enjoyed?
1: Well, I've really got two first cars. There's the first car that we all drove when we got our driver's license. Um, but, but I had a car in my life long before that, that's it's probably the one I really wish I had. When I was five, Obviously, as I said before, my dad was in the car business. I got a, a, a pedal car, it's an Austin J forty. Nowadays, a seen infrequently around, but very iconic and, and difficult to come across. Um, and, and I got that. It, I, I, it, the license plate he had made up was Tim Five. I think I slept in that car for the first two days I had it. <laughs> you could not get me out of it. I, it's, you know. I, I, whether I was at my parents' house or my grandmother's house and and, and that was a, that was a special car and, and still is and every so often I, i've in you know, the last year i've I've tried to bid on one at, at auctions a couple of times and uh, I've got close but the reality is if I get one it's gonna you know sit in the house or or sit in the office somewhere and I'm gonna have to be sensible otherwise my my wife's gonna go you paid how much for that and it's gonna do what for us?
0: this is not funny so
1: I've got to be Yeah, there's only so much you can spend on on memories. My first road car, it was a 1970. It was a Ford Cortina 1600E.
0: Oh, cool. Um,
1: I was not looking for this car. You know, when you're a kid in school and your driver's license is on the horizon, invariably you want something with two doors that you can get a speeding ticket in because you want it to go fast. And I was looking at Capri's. My dad came across this 1600E. Uh, and I looked at it because he asked me to and, and, and actually, you know, grew to like it. And, and I had it for the longest time. In fact, I I kept my, my dad keep it probably five or six years after I moved out here. And I think he had that reality conversation with me. And he says, you know, I know you want to keep the car, but even when you come back, are you really going to want to drive car with like that when you're used to American cars? You know, it's funny, I just recently bought a, a, a video uh, on the Ford Cortina, sort of reminiscing about the 1600e.
0: Mm-hmm. So that
1: that was my first car. I'll it's find. out there somewhere.
0: It's out there somewhere. You know, when I was very young, I had a gartened pedal car. It was called a Kiddillac and it was yellow, and I always wished that we'd kept that, but we moved, and my mom gave it to a neighbor, and I never forgave her for that. I always yeah. <laughs> wanted wanted that Kiddillac back, and I have a picture of me in it, and I, I know you sent me a picture of, of you in that little pedal car, so uh I hope you find that someday and get to park yeah. that in your living room or your office. Is there a car in the past that you've sold that you have seller's remorse over that you really wish you, you had back?
1: I don't think so. Um, I, I I haven't really been in, in the world of, of sort of buying and selling cars, but, but I've tried to, you know, whether it's cars or items that you own, if you decide to, to sell something, I don't think you can... I think if you have seller's remorse, then you're just going to torture yourself.
0: Sure. <laughs> um, of
1: course, in today's world, we all come across lots of people, especially with in, in the car world, where some of these cars are uh, getting to you know prices that are certainly making headlines in, in the you know the car publications. And people go, "Oh, I used to have one of those." Yeah, but you know, don't dwell on it.
0: Right. Don't look back. Just look forward that is there a current project you're working on right now at the museum that really has you excited and fired up
1: there is uh, there's a couple of things we're working on we're, we're looking to, to do we've just done a quite a, a shuffle uh, of our car gallery it's not finished yet but we're looking to, to come up with a, a couple of uh, themed displays um, for later in the year for for car wise and, and that's still in the works we're very fortunate that because of the nature of the cars we have you know we can change the configuration of the cars and and we can take what is seen as a you know a ferrari display in one area and a uh, maserati display in another area and then turn it around and, and now we've got a, a big gnarly display and a touring a coachwork display or in, in the world of, of coach builders like, you know, South where you've got Calvo Lagos and Cadillacs. So we can shuffle our cars around on a, I would say, on a frequent basis, but, but somewhat regular to, to try and give the, the gallery um, a different look and feel. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we do get people that come to the museum and it's their one time they're going to come here, whether they come from Southern California, the East Coast, or Europe. Maybe we're on their bucket list and, and once they've checked that box, you know, we may not see them again. But we also have a lot of people from the Bay Area or people that travel that come here, you know, relatively frequently. And, and we have to be conscious of as much as it's nice to see the cars over and over again, sometimes just by changing the, the direction they face. They sometimes see a car we've had for a long time, but they they think they've seen it for the first time. So they see it from a different angle.
0: Sure, sure, absolutely. Now, here's an interesting question for you, Tim. If you were a car, what car would you be and why? <laughs>
1: um, I suppose probably really simple, um, uh, Range Rover.
0: A Range Rover. Now, that is one of the last things I thought I would ever hear from you when you go to work every day <laughs> around all those amazing cars. <laughs>
1: yeah, but you've, you've got to, again, you're not talking about somebody's passion for cars. You know, what, can you stay between the lines in a Range Rover? Yes. Can you go <laughs> off and do whatever you need to do outside the lines you know, through the, the thick and thin of life? Yes, can you can you look good, clean and shiny? You know, can you be, can you do what you need to do? Roll your sleeves up and, and get into it.
0: There you go. Well, that's why I asked that question because it brings up. I mean, some... you're not
1: going to take a LaFerrari and and try and drive across across you know an open field, and you're not going <laughs> to no. take a Royale and go from here to you know Arizona.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, that's a great answer. Okay, Tim, this is uh, one of my favorite parts of our talks. I call it the last lap. And this is where I fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready to go? I think I am. Okay. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received?
1: Enjoy. If you're driving a car, if you own a car, if you're looking for a car, enjoyment has to be the the primary importance. If you're doing it for other reasons and you don't have the enjoyment, you're probably... Going to be disappointed somewhere down the road.
0: Perfect. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success?
1: Um, relationship and you know, do what you say you're going to do it, and, and do to the best of your abilities. We all do things differently. Some of us are, are good at, you know, planning and strategy. Some of us, some people are, are good at selling. Some people are, at analyzing can't be all things to all people. Well, 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 I can't, I just, you know, whatever we're going to do, do it to the best of our ability. And if something goes wrong, you know, let's address it. Sure. Problems don't go away. <laughs> they just get hidden.
0: Yes, perfect. Do you have a resource that you would share with our listeners that you really enjoy? Maybe it's a website or a supplier or restoration shop or even a person.
1: Probably a, a couple of things. You know, in the car world, there are so many because the car world is so diverse. I mean, it's an enormous umbrella when you just say, you know, the collector car community. I get a a newsletter each morning from from a website that's that's based in England called Classic Driver, and and I enjoy that. It's it's a short soundbite thing. As a resource, I I think that you know even though it started in the world of hot rods, I think it's very broad now for the collector car world. I think the SEMA organization. Is is probably underlying importance to all of us that that touch the world of old cars, and and you can define an old car as something that's less than ten years, you know, or more than a hundred.
0: Perfect. Is there a book you've recently read, Tim, that you would share with our listeners? Um,
1: I read a lot of car books, one because of obviously the the research we do or just checking up on the descriptions we have, but there's there's a a couple of books not so much automotive books, but there's a, there's one book or a couple of books written by a chap that I've really enjoyed reading. There's a, a writer called uh, LJK Setright, And a friend of mine gave me this book um, It's called Long Lane with Turnings, hmm. And and it was the, the, the last words of a motoring legend. and And I've just enjoyed that, you know, when I'm in that sort of car zone, just Reading what Seth Wright had written, you know, he was definitely, you know, one of the great writers. And there's been some, some wonderful automotive writers that have written about whether it's a history of car, car, car events. And, and I enjoy going back. My my biggest challenge is is you know, we have a library here, we have a lef- reference library, and boy, if I go in there, I, I've almost got to put a, a an alarm clock on you know, to get me out of there. Otherwise, I can I can lose a whole day just going back through books and publications, you know, we've got some publications that go back, you know, to the early 1900s, and you start reading about cars or the automotive world or motorsports, and, and I could just disappear into that world very easy.
0: Wonderful. Well, listeners, you can find links to all these resources that Tim has shared with us today at carsyeah.com slash tim mcgrain, or just put Tim's name in the search box that'll lead you to his show notes page. So Tim, we're now at the checkered flag. And this last question can sometimes be a challenge for people. I like to call it a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, something you could not sell to buy other cars with and money was no object, what would that car be and why? That
1: is a very challenging question and and I've I've asked that question to a number of people over the years. And, and more recently, we have a speaker series at the museum here we do it in the spring and the fall. And after the presenters had that, we have six questions we ask them. And, you know, and one of the questions is that, and I know how they agonize over it, but I've got one. It's the 1959 Aston Martin DBR one. Ooh. Um, the, the Le Mans winning one um, for a number of reasons. One, growing up in England, Aston Martin was was, was certainly top or equal top of the list of, of cars they probably had lined up on my school desk sterling moss you know won the world championship for aston martin in it shelby won le mans 24 hours in it you know, one of the greatest team managers ever john wire was the manager and and i just think the car is is one of the most beautiful designs out there so that that easily would be the one that would um, be a hard choice but that would be the choice
0: well, what a wonderful choice. That That is one of my favorite cars as well. It is just spectacular, beautiful, wonderful. So, excellent choice. Great job. Well, Tim, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories. I want to thank you for sharing your journey with us. If you could please give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Aston Martin, and let our listeners know what's the best way for them to find you at the museum, and then we'll say goodbye.
1: Okay. I would say it's advice, but but definitely I, I think that enjoy life. I, I see people that come to the museum, come to events. I've met them around there, and don't put off enjoying life till tomorrow or next week. Take take every day and, and live life to the fullest. Absolutely. And, uh, and 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 if living life to the fullest is is making a visit to the museum, our website address is blackhawkmuseum.org we are located in Danville which is a town in the East San Francisco Bay area uh, walnut creek's to the north of us pleasant and dublin to the south of us if anybody makes their way to the monterey peninsula we're just about 2 hours outside the monterey peninsula so see us on your way there or we'll stop by on your way back
0: absolutely and thank you for that the great words of wisdom and i can say having visited the black hawk if you're anywhere near that area Even if you're not, make a special trip to go there. It is wonderful. You will not be disappointed. It's just a spectacular place. Just the environment there is wonderful. And then to have all those cars in there is extra special. So listeners, again, you can find all this information on carsyad.com slash Tim mcgrain. Tim, thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise and your stories today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road.
1: Goodbye, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I very much enjoyed it.
0: Oh, I did too. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! (laughs)
1: you <laughs>